Happy Epiphany, for those of you keeping track of the church calendar. Uh, actually, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Tanya, when you mentioned that during the, serve, during the worship, um, you know, my mind went, we are continuing this sermon series today, Surrender, and that, that image did come to mind that, uh, from Matthew 2, of these wise men coming to that manger when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down, they worshipped him, and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It just uh, is a reminder, launching into the series called Surrender, that we are surrendering all to God. And here are these wise men, uh, some have called kings uh, from far distant lands, that there is whatever was going on before that point in their life, at this point, they were just called to go and worship even this child. So, um, and also, it's extremely important that we say, go Ravens. Uh, for those of you, yeah, yeah, this is uh, a big day. Uh, how many years has it been since we've been in the playoffs? Has it been two years or what? It's been six years since we've been in the playoffs? Wow. Something like that. Um, so, yeah, rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, today we are continuing that three-week series, Surrendering All Things to God, and I've said before, uh, we're going to revisit this theme later this summer, but for now we're focusing on three specific topics, power, sex, and money. If you weren't here last week, make sure you get a chance to check out Derek Miller's sermon on power through our podcast. Uh, we'll make sure that we get that posted soon. I, I'll apologize for not offering more of an introduction last week on Derek, by the way. Um, it, this was actually his third time preaching at New Hope, uh, and every time he guest teaches, uh, folks just assume that he's my brother. Um, Derek and I went to seminary together, and it was commonly commented whenever we were seen together in the hallway or in a class or something, hey, there goes the Miller brothers, you know, like we were selling cars or something. Derek's a great guy, but he's not my brother. He is, however, an exceptionally gifted teacher, and I'm so glad that we get to have him here from time to time. Speaking of guest preachers, uh, we have a special treat lined up next week. This is something that has been cooking for actually several years. Uh, Keith and Emily Hickox will be here wrapping up the first section of the Surrender series, and they're going to be talking about money. Uh, they are students and advocates for the Dave Ramsey School of Financial Peace, uh, and Keith just returned from a year of military service in Kuwait, and Emily is a contract auditor for the Department of Defense. Um, they are both exceptionally bright and outrageously good people, um, so please don't miss next week. Now, today... Today we're considering this topic of human sexuality. First, before we go any further, <clears throat> I'd like to say that I realize that this is an incredibly complicated topic. Well, it is my prayer that what we consider today will help to place this issue in proper context. I don't expect that all of our questions regarding God-honoring sexual expression are going to be answered today. This has been a perennial topic, one that has endured over the centuries and throughout all of human history. There has never been 
a corner of the world or a civilization on this earth that has not had to wrestle with the reality of human sexuality. Even the purpose of it seems to elude many of us. As, as a pastor, I've sat with men and women alike who have tearfully contemplated why sexuality is a part of the human experience at all. And therefore, um, whenever the topic of sexuality comes up, and, and therefore marriage, we would be wrong not to acknowledge that there are those who would very much like to be married and are not. I hope you can hear my heart that in, I believe, the church must be a place where we can not only support one another, but also lament together broken, the realities of brokenness. Um, that when there are those that are in our body, that are those that are in our community, um, that are lamenting um, the fact that they don't have this person to share this specific aspect of not only their life, but, but also their faith. Because as we're going to talk about today, sexuality can have a, a, a role in our faith. I think that as a body, we have a responsibility to support and, and lament that with them. Um, and that leads to my second point of preface. I want to acknowledge that this is an incredibly emotional topic. A few days ago, I had the honor, and I don't use that word lightly, I had the absolute honor of teaching a class on leadership and influence for the Samaritan Women, an organization which is just down the road committed to the support of those who are survivors of human trafficking. Uh, last week, Derek challenged us to be honest about the power that we have in this world, not in a way that apologizes for who we are, but in a way that helps us acknowledge the role that we play in society. Um, the sad and angering truth is that there are some, even in this world today, who would use what power they have to exploit the sexuality of others for their own personal gain. Perhaps we haven't been directly affected by something as abhorrent as human trafficking, but I am beginning this sermon with the assumption that each and every person in this room has had to wrestle with their own sexuality. I know this because each and every person in this room, uh, because each and every person in the world has had to do so. One of my favorite figures in history is John Adams, the second president of the United States. When Adams was a student at Harvard, he recorded in his diary some of his personal frustrations. He says, why have I not genius to start some new thought, something that will surprise the world? His biographer, David McCullough, muses tongue-in-cheek, why could he not bring order to his life? Why could he not clear his table of its clutter and books and papers and concentrate on just one book, one subject? Why did imagination so often intervene? And why did thoughts of girls keep intruding? If you can sympathize, you are in good company. Adams would go on to be one of the principal architects of American independence. His passions would change the course of Western civilization. But there it is, even in 17-something, he wrestled emotionally with his sexuality. This leads me full circle to this topic's place in this series called Surrender. This complicated emotional topic, like any other complicated emotional topic, finds no better understanding than, when it, uh, than it does when God is placed at the center of it. God's desire um, is that He would be Lord of our life. He desires this because it's already true. 
God knows you intimately because he created you. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God understands human sexuality because he created it and he desires for us to acknowledge his lordship over it. Like every other part of our lives, our sexuality has been corrupted by sin. Rebellion against the way God originally intended things to work. Our call as Christians is to return to a sexuality that is rooted in our holy union with Him. One of the most important things we can say about sex is that it is a good thing. Someone, something that God created um, for our pleasure as a signpost of something greater. Something far greater than we often make it out to be. But to do what we must listen, but to do that we must listen for His voice to bring wisdom to this complicated emotional topic. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. You know, I just realized that we put those Bibles, James, all the way over there. So if anybody has like a Bible, you can raise your hand and James will uh, deliver it to you. Genesis 1.26, then God said, make man, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Three things to point out about this text. First, we have to see this, that this is um, a culmination of something that God had been doing since the beginning of the chapter. I'm sure you're familiar with the story up to this point. The biblical author uses poetic language to help us see that God built this world and its complexities are understood in the context of His creative power. In short, God doesn't, just doesn't like poof the universe into existence. It is formed progressively by his like, steady and calm hand. It's formed progressively in a very dynamic fashion. Although God himself doesn't change, he's always on the move, working through the natural systems of this world. Every piece of the created order affects other pieces. The heavens give light to the earth, and the fish swim in the waters, and the vegetation yields seed which produces other vegetation. You see, God doesn't create a world that is just finished and complete, or even perfect in the sense that it is done. He doesn't just paint a picture of a created world that doesn't move and is kind of just static. He creates a system that is designed to move in the rhythm of its creator. Second, this concept of humanity being made in the Imago Dei, the the image of God, is one of profound significance. God creates humanity after his likeness and then gives humanity a special place among all that God has created. 
Nothing else is made in the image of God, and nothing else, to nothing else, does God speak directly. But to humanity, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. One of the big ha-ha moments when I was um, at teaching this class at the Samaritan Women last week was when we got to talk um, honestly. I, just, I sat down in this chair and we kind of talked in a circle. Uh, we looked at this passage and we talked about the difference between domination and dominion. We talked about what does it mean? We, we actually had this little um, game where we played where we, 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 I asked one, one of the, um, the women to, to put everybody in the room in order from um, the dates of their birth, just of their birth year. Uh, not their ages, but um, like, you know, people who, if you were born on January 1st, you'd be first, and if you were uh, born on December 31st, you'd be last. And so I said, I want everybody to be in order. And I said, you have dominion over this task. And she got up and she did it, and she was very polite. She says, oh, you know, she had to ask everybody, what's your birthday, what's your birthday? Oh, you would be here, and you would be here. And I could tell them being very polite about it. And she finished her task, and I said, very well done. You have completed this task excellently. Um, And then I said, now, tell me how you would have done this task if I instead ask you to dominate it. And she said, well, I guess I would have started yelling at people and, you know, throwing them across the room and all that. And I said, yeah, there's a difference between domination and dominion. Here in Genesis, God is giving humanity dominion or stewardship. One writer says, the image of God in the human person is a mandate of power and responsibility, but it is a power exercised as God exercises power. The image images the creative use of power which invites, evokes, permits. There is nothing here of coercive or tyrannical power, either for God or for humankind. No, we're called to subdue the earth, be stewards of it, have dominion over it with a wisdom from our Creator, not dominated in an exploitive way for our own selfish gain. Humanity has the unique task of being God's image bearers in a world created by Him and for Him. And the first words God gives to humanity is the call, be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, it is important for us to understand that our sexuality fits within the context of this call. The third thing to mention about this passage is that it specifically mentions that humanity was created not only in God's image, but also male and female. So here's the first mention of human sexuality in the Bible. God creates humankind in His image, male and female, and gives them the task to be fruitful and multiply. This shows us that sexuality was ordained by God as part of the human experience. But did you notice the use of the singular and the plural language there in verse 27? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So on one hand, humanity is a singular entity. It's kind of like the church. On one hand, the church is a singular entity. But on the other hand, humanity itself is a community, male plus female. 
Neither of them is alone the image of God. Only by working together will they accomplish their task of being fruitful and multiplying. I think this is true whether, regardless of whether or not we are um, in a marriage relationship or not. We are all called uh, to work together as a community. This has all been just the first chapter of the book of Genesis, but the book is fascinating in that it gives us the whole story again from a slightly different angle. This time, turn in Genesis 2, the, the story is told again, but this time humanity plays a more prominent role in the story. It says that God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man becomes a living creature. Then down in verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up its place with flesh, and the rib that was the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, in the first chapter of Genesis, we see successive days of creation, and at the end of each day, God calls what he has done good. On the sixth day, after God creates humanity, he even says that it was very good. But here in chapter 2, We see God call something not good. It is not good that man should be alone. So God then decides that man needs a helper, uh, one who is fit for him. God had created all sorts of creatures, living creatures, but among them all was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, I know even less Hebrew than than Greek. I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, but I really don't know Hebrew at all. And I looked up, but I had to look up the word helper. It's the word azer. Psalm 33, 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our azer and our shield. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, throughout the Old Testament, the term azer means help or aid, but it is, it is often tied to how God helps his people. But here it's used to describe how even among all the living creatures and even in the face of the relationship that man has with God, it still isn't good for man to be alone. He needs a helper, not a servant, but an equal. 
So God takes a man, a piece of that man, and He uses it to form a new sort of creature, one that is a counterpart to the man. God places woman before Him, and then like Etta James starts playing, at last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over. And life is like a song. The intimacy here cannot be understated. Verse 24 speaks of how from this passage the institution of marriage was crafted. It says that the man will need to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. He, see, he, he's to leave what he had previously known. Obviously, this isn't about a man like distancing himself from um, his family of origin, but it is saying that there is a new chapter of identity at play when a man and a woman become one flesh and are naked and unashamed. You see, that's not supposed to be subtle. The intimacy of this holy union is something that God builds upon throughout the rest of Scripture. That intimacy, along with everything else, is corrupted by the introduction of rebellious sin into the story in chapter 3. You see, the intimacy that existed between the man and the woman was always supposed to be a signpost that pointed towards God's intimacy with humanity, an intimacy and fidelity that was broken by the fall. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of what it looks like for God and His creation to be in perfect union. After the fall, our union with God was corrupted. So God, as we know, God started a rescue mission to save the world which would come to be called Israel. Israel was supposed to be a people set apart, a signpost for what it looked like for a people to be in union with their God. And we're actually going to spend the next several months discussing how that all got started. As you probably know, the people of Israel find themselves enslaved in the land of Egypt, and they're delivered by God through the help of Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and then gives them the law which... Um, among which lies the Ten Commandments. The commandments, again, reflect the call to intimacy that Israel is supposed to have with their God and also with each other and offer boundaries for how Israel can retain that intimacy as a community. One of the commandments says, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery, in a sexual sense, would include any form of sexual expression outside of the marital union. But it's interesting that what our rabbi did with, that interpreta- with the interpretation of that text. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, yeah, we've heard Moses say that. That's in Exodus. But I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. My goodness. Jesus is raising the stakes here to avoid any sense of legalistic maneuvering. 
well, it wasn't really adultery because we weren't really married. Or it wasn't really adultery because it was only on the computer screen. Or it wasn't really adultery because we really didn't go all the way. Isn't it funny that sometimes we think of the Old Testament as the place where the real wrath of God's stuff is found? But here, Jesus is mentioning that commandment to marital fidelity, and he is stressing that point intensely. You've probably heard me quote Dr. Gorman in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, where this, the section of Matthew's Gospel where this comes from. Dr. Gorman's often told me, my New Testament professor in seminary, um, says that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of a whole new way of being human. Jesus is calling them to live beyond a legalistic interpretation of the law by doing two things. First, he's calling them back. He's calling them back to the intimacy that, God, that Adam had with his wife in the garden, an intimacy that is two people working in perfect fidelity, uh, working together as one flesh. But perhaps more importantly, he's calling them to express sexuality in a way that will anticipate something greater than what they've done in the past, but far greater than the legalistic wonderings of how far is too far. Jesus is calling them to anticipate where this whole ship is headed. One last place of Scripture I want us to have a look at. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Beginning at the beginning of the chapter of Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, that just takes things to a whole new level. See, here to the writer of the book of Revelation is using that image of marriage to describe where this whole ship is heaven, uh, headed, the marriage of heaven and earth. Israel has once been described in adulterous language as a people who repeatedly violated fidelity with God, but now the image of the new heaven and the new earth is one of the new Israel being in complete union with God. Ultimately, that's why it is so important to protect the marriage bed as the only proper venue for sexual expression because as Christians, we're called to live into that new creation reality, not just then, not just one fine day when I fly away, but now. We are called to live that new creation now. The Sermon on the Mount is an example of Jesus telling us how to do that. Sexuality was always supposed to be reflective of our relationship with God. And when we violate that, we're not moving in the direction of his kingdom. You see, it was never supposed to be about us not doing the naughty thing. It was never supposed to be about God being some big rule maker in the sky who doesn't really want us to have any fun. It was always about us being called into the path of life that is offered by Jesus. 
It was always about God calling us into union with himself. Last week, I loved what Derek said. He said that surrendering to God's will, it's not about giving up. It's about giving over. It's about trusting that living within the bounds of God's design for sexuality is actually the best way for us to express sexuality. There's so much uh, scripture and, and text that we didn't get to today. We can look at, uh, we spent a few years ago in business time looking at the Song of Songs, just this beautiful Hebrew language of what it looks like for a, for a man and a woman to engage in their sexuality together. Um, and of course, we you know, could look at a ton of Paul, which I know I'm just flying by, but what can I say? It's a one o'clock game. But one final point, it's this. Each and every one of us is called to anticipate that marriage of heaven and earth. Each and every one of us is invited to participate in that marriage regardless of whether or not we are actually married here on this earth. The truth is that the church at large has done a rather poor job with sexuality on a variety of fronts, but as we approach this table... Let us to be reminded that in Christ, we are one. Just as joy should be felt by all, so should brokenness. As we seek to do life together in this thing called the church, may we be ever reminded that we should lift up one another, encourage one another, even as we wrestle with something like human sexuality. Our communion table at New Hope also called the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. It's open to all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, if you're not there yet, if you haven't yet made the decision to follow Christ, you need to know that we love you and that we are so glad that you're here. We want you to be welcome here. We want you to think of New Hope as a place where you can come not having to hide your doubts or your questions. And when we take communion, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just have a few moments of silence in your seat. I will add this, though, as I do every time we do communion, that this is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, the other being baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith that announces to the world that you're a Jesus follower, whereas communion is a sustaining aspect of your faith that reminds us of Christ's sacrifice and our communion with God and also with each other. So if you decide to come forward for communion and you have not yet been baptized, that's okay, but I will ask you to consider coming to me later to discuss the possibility of making that public declaration of your faith soon. The bread is unleavened, lovingly prepared by our own Alicia Poling. There is also gluten-free crackers, The red is wine, the white is grape juice, and after coming forward, I'll ask everyone to take the elements back to your seat where we will partake them together. First, though, please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, 
of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.